Okay, let's, uh, let's get going. Um, let's open with prayer first. Father, you are uh, gracious to us in many ways. We're studying your forgiveness this morning, and we're so thankful for the forgiveness, forgiveness we have in Christ, that we stand before you uh, with a forgiven and cleansed of our sins, and uh, we stand before a benevolent and kind, compassionate Father. Please please help us understand uh, our need for, forg for forgiveness this morning, and uh, uh, help us to come away more thankful, more able to... Uh, um, Tell your gospel to those who are needy. We ask these things in Christ Jesus. Amen. Okay. Um, years ago, uh, I saw a cartoon where the, uh, in a worship service, at sermon time, the pastor comes down out of his pulpit and he's kneeling on the front bench, and he's pointing directly at one of his his uh, uh, parishioners. And and the caption says, "Pastor Jones gets unusually specific this morning." <laughs> if you feel that way after this, uh, you're not alone. I've been feeling this all week long as I've been preparing for it. So. Uh, this is on our need for forgiveness. Um, chapter 8 of the book um, by Keller called Forgive. Um, also, if, uh, hopefully we'll get time to cover Appendix C. So chapter 8 is our need for forgiveness. Appendix C is forgiveness practices. Um, and there is a lot of practicality in both of these. Uh, the, the book is divided up into three sections. Um, and this is the first, uh, first chapter of the last section. Uh, the last section is uh, practicing forgiveness. Uh, the first section, Losing and Finding Forgiveness, was about the very idea, I, I, I gather from just kind of quickly reading through parts of it. This is, this is the first time I've sat in a, sat, uh, stood in a class on this book, so uh, I may be a little disconnected. Um, it, it, the first section was about the very idea of forgiveness being lost in our culture, uh, what the prior history of the idea of forgiveness is, uh, why the germ of the concept still lingers, and it ends with what it calls the book of forgiveness. What's the book of forgiveness? It's, it's this, okay? Uh, it does a deep dive regarding the God who forgives and how, how he can forgive it then looks at the difference of the Christ, uh, the, the difference that Christian forgiveness makes as it's as uh, as it's based on the cross of Christ and his substitutionary atonement, along with the basic directives from Jesus. 
about forgiveness. The last, uh, oh, part of that was the second section, understanding forgiveness, okay? Uh, the last, uh, this last section titled Practicing Forgiveness, um, as the title would suggest, we're getting into the practicalities of what it takes to actually do and live forgiveness as Christians. In this section, Keller walks us progressively down that road, the road of more and more practicing of forgiveness. In the chapter we'll cover today, we explore the question of whether we actually need forgiveness, or rather, it explains the fact that we, as fallen human beings before God, before a just and holy God, uh, do actually need forgiveness. <clears throat> the remaining chapters move further down the road, receiving God's forgiveness. Uh, it then turns to granting and extending our forgiveness to those who've wronged us and what that looks like. Uh, so, chapter 8. Um, by this time, uh, it should be clear that what we're talking about is Christian forgiveness, um, biblical forgiveness, not, <clears throat> not any kind of forgiveness that could be supported by uh, understanding gained from a study of philosophy or ethics, based on human nature, etc. This is Christian forgiveness. As, Ke as Keller notes, Christian forgiveness begins with the vertical dimension, our own personal need for God's forgiveness, which is what this chapter is about, and how we receive that, which is dealt with in the next chapter. Um, the core of this, of course, is the gospel of Jesus Christ. This gives us a way, the way, as Keller puts it, to understand our profound, ineradicable need for God's removal of our guilt and shame. This gospel also gives us what we need for receiving God's forgiveness and uh, the resources we need and extending it to others. Um, this is broken up into several sections, and it kind of moves from how the idea of forgiveness has been, uh, the idea of our need for forgiveness, the very idea of guilt and shame has diminished over time, the reasons it has, and... Uh, and then go, moves into the fact that we nevertheless still, still, still carry our burden by, by that sense of guilt. And then uh, the, the biblical explanation for that sense of guilt. In the late 1800s and early 1900s, uh, humanistic, uh, atheistic viewpoints predicted the decline and disappearance of the common sense of guilt that human beings felt. Uh, Karl Marx in the late, uh, mid to late 1800s helped 
undermine the idea of inner guilt and shame by reducing all moral claims to simply being ways that those in power keep their power and keep the class structure in place that benefits them. Uh, making morality as being just the outworking of one's social, condi uh, social location, where he's at. Um, so he reduced it to a class struggle, really. Uh, following that, in a book in 1980, or, I'm sorry, <laughs> 1887, Frederick Nietzsche postulated that, uh, quote, as more and more people rejected religion and God, the, the experience of guilt and shame would melt away. Uh, actually, I think that was a quote of Keller's uh, summarization of uh, Nietzsche. Uh, so he predicts that as we, as we reject religion and God, that that sense of guilt would melt away. Okay. Freud, Sigmund Freud later proposed in, uh, in the early 1900s, as Keller summarizes it, we must come to see that our guilty inner feelings are really just impositions upon us by those who want to keep us under their power and influence. And he sought to demoralize, remove the moral uh, dimension of guilt demoralize guilt by treating it as strictly subjective, as not being grounded in objective moral realities at all. Sadly, when his own daughter, Sophie, died of influenza at age 26, he wrote, as a confirmed believer, this is Freud, as a confirmed I'm sorry, as a confirmed unbeliever, I have no one to accuse and realize that there is no place where I could lodge a complaint. Well, needless to say, there's been enough time since, uh, time elapsed since then to see how Nietzsche's prediction turned out. Um, Keller uses a, an essay by Wilfred McClay called uh, The Strange Persistence of Guilt. Uh, Keller points out that even this, with the secularization of Western society and the revitalization, revitalization of moral truth, I'm sorry, relativization of moral truth, nevertheless, the experience of guilt and shame continues just as it has before, the personal experience of it. Uh, books abound on the healing of guilt, and they're read by millions. And arguably, as Keller puts it, uh, other terms like low self-esteem, feelings of inadequacy, poor body image, self-loathing, self-harm, map directly onto what has traditionally been called guilt and shame. Secular people are in a strange position of feeling like sinners without having a name for it. Um, uh, this is this idea, this, this state of affairs, 
uh, is, is kind of spelled out in a fictional form by Franz Kafka uh, in his book, The Trial. The central character, Joseph, in the midst of his normal life on his 30th birthday is arrested. He's indicted, put under house arrest, interrogated uh, several times, given multiple hearings, but he never learns what he's accused of. He begins, eventually begins to doubt himself, but can't get to the bottom of it. He questions himself. Is his arrest deserved or not? Is he guilty or not? Keller says, uh, modern culture has done everything to deny God, heaven, hell, and moral categories altogether. But it hasn't helped. In fact, it's made it worse because our guilt now can't be eradicated, can't be appeased. In fact, it can't be atoned for, but must only be borne. You're just burdened with it. Our secular culture now has no answer to that inner voice that shames us, that, that says we're not living up <clears throat> to some undefined standard. After the fall, this has become the human condition. John Updike has quoted, is quoted commenting on Kafka that um, his story of Joseph epitomizes the modern mindset, a sense of anxiety and shame whose center can't be located and therefore can't be placated. Now, as you would expect, the, the Bible has an explanation of why we feel as we do. If you'll look with me at uh, Genesis 3, this is a familiar story, and, and I'm sure to you would be a, have a feel familiar explanation. Um, we'll read starting at, <clears throat> at verse 7, <clears throat> excuse me, through 9. Um, <clears throat> after disobeying God, it starts, it says this. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of, God, of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. Adam and Eve have never experienced this before. It, when, I, when I thought of that, I thought of the opposite. Where we're at now, we've never experienced the opposite of the, you know, of being completely having never sinned. Anyway, Adam and Eve have never experienced this, for, this before. They, they immediately experience shame and guilt as a feeling of being naked. As Keller 
summarizes it, they feel exposed and vulnerable and must immediately cover up and hide the truth of who uh, they have become from God and from each other. And this, of course, is at the root of what Paul describes in uh, Romans 1.18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. And we've been suppressing the truth in unrighteousness ever since then. The truth about God and about ourselves. Keller continues, uh, they sense in the depths of their being that there is something wrong with them, something they cannot justify. Now they are desperate to cover up, to control what others see of them, and to hide the truth of who they are, even from themselves. Uh, it's well known that some profiles on Facebook are tweaked or fabricated out of whole cloth for this very reason. They want to present themselves a certain way. Um, God, then in verse 11, God working backwards exposes the root problem. He says, uh, who told you you were naked? Of course, no one told them. Uh, and, and then the diagnostic question, uh, have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And then the blame game starts. The man said, the woman who you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Adam and Eve's fig leaves can be seen as an attempt at uh, self-salvation, covering up uh, who they had become. The initial separation from God was their own separation, hiding from God, uh, an attempt to escape the gaze of God. Now, uh, what, what are some modern-day fig leaves? Um, we, we tend to do, do the same thing. We tend to cover up. I say we, fallen humanity, okay? They can actually be constructed out of the material of many aspects of, uh, of daily life. Uh, they can be philanthropic works politi or political donations, as we've recently seen with uh, Sam, Sam Bankman-Fried. Or they can be religious works under the guise of just about any religion. They can be attempts to uh, dull our minds with drugs or alcohol, and so hide our true self from ourself. It can come in the form of overwork that shields us from failures at home or from, or from social fail failures. Uh, we can adopt a victim identity, uh, shifting the blame to others. Uh, it can come in the form of trying to gain the favor of others. Uh, or gossiping about others in order to uh, put themselves a step up in the hierarchy above others. And of course, in our culture, the denial of moral absolutes uh, itself becomes the new morality, uh, the new standard 
whereby some measure others and find them wanting and condemned, playing the legislature, uh, the judge, and the executor all in one. And it's obvious that these fig leaves don't work any more than Adam and Eve's did. Uh, I mean, Keller points out, I mean, just imagine for a moment what would have eventually happened to those fig leaves, those physical fig leaves. Well, we're seeing it now <laughs> in the tree, the leaves falling from the trees, okay? It, it would have never worked. Uh, but God had for them a covering of his own making, okay? Uh, in Genesis 3.21, it says, And the Lord God made for Adam and his wife, for his wife, garments of skin and clothed them. That kind of prefigures a death that had to occur to atone. And God, uh, God has a covering of his own making for his people, as he promised in, in verse 15 of Genesis 3, that Christ through Suffering a bruised heel would crush the head of the serpent and put to death, put death to death by his own death. Now, what does this have to do with our need for forgiveness? As Keller puts it, if we're not willing to hear the Bible's teaching about where this sense of nakedness comes from, and if we don't recognize the fig leaves in our own lives, we'll be trapped. And in fact, that's what we're seeing in this generation is a trapped generation. They have nowhere to go for atonement because they've rejected the, the one true atonement. Following up on that, Keller helpfully contrasts verse 7 in Genesis 3, where they made uh, loincloths of fig leaves for themselves, with Philippians 3, 7 to 11, where uh, Paul, after after forswearing his confidence in the flesh and works righteousness, says this, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness of, from God that depends on faith. Okay, and this final uh, couple of verses, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Uh, Keller points out uh, spiritual resources given us in Christianity that are, are crucial for both receiving God's forgiveness and for extending it to others. Um, and he says there's three, but I had a little trouble with his numbering. So I don't know if there's three or four or more, but well, let me spell out some of the things he talks about in here. Um, the first two are seen in the familiar story of Joseph and his brothers, okay, after the death 
of, of their father Jacob in uh, Gen uh, Genesis 50. Um, okay, uh, their father has died. Their father has died, and the brothers, uh, when they saw that their father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. Now, think, think, about, think about that for a moment. If you're not going to be able to forgive someone, the opposite of that is that, is that kind of dwelling hatred and paying back sense of having to pay back. That'll come up again in a moment here. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now, please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Jesus wept when they spoke to him. Joseph wept. My wife here is correcting me. That's good. I need correcting. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? A rhetorical question. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus, he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Now, you'll see in there what Joseph, Joseph is doing actively and saying to, to forgive, okay? Uh, you, you won't find in there the words, I forgive you, but he's doing things related to forgiving, okay? Uh, this is likely not new ground for you, but let's notice a few things in this scene, not, not in any particular order, uh, looking, at, looking especially at Joseph's response to his brother's plea for forgiveness. Notice that Joseph, Joseph is acknowledging when he says, "Do not fear, for I am I in the place of, am I in the place of God?" He, he's notice what he's acknowledging there. He's stepping down from the high ground, his high position in the land, his position of power over them, even his position as their benefactor. But more, he steps down from his position as the victim. In what went on between them. In fact, he steps down from the position of occupying the high moral ground. At an important level, he's no different than them. A fallen man, a fellow sinner against, uh, against the living God. This is really a picture of humbleness, of humility being played out before us. Also, Joseph doesn't minimize their transgression against him. He says plainly, you meant it for evil against me. All that they, all that they did to him, okay, they meant for evil. 
sin and evil done by people are real. And they have real consequences. Uh, our pain and distress and loss over those things are real. And that loss, uh, that loss can be appropri appropriately expressed. Repentance also can be real and ought to be real. And it should be, uh, also should be appropriately expressed. But Keller says, as Keller says, all of the parties involved must not get stuck there, uh, spinning their wheels there in, in, well, anyway, must not get stuck there, spinning their wheels in regret, resentment, revenge. Uh, Joseph moves things on by what he does past that cycle, okay? For one, Joseph says, uh, God meant it for good, okay, to bring about bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. In the Bible, there are many truths that must be held together in tension, often with some mystery that may remain unexplained. This is one of them. Uh, you really did mean it for evil. Okay? Well, I think it's a common human experience that when we're wronged, we do feel a certain moral superiority. And it's that that he steps away from, he steps down from. Uh, and by, by saying, I'm a fellow sinner with you, no. Uh, I don't know if that answers your question, but yeah, I mean, there, there is an element of pride, but it, the emotion behind it is that sense of, that sense of rage uh, against being wrong. Um, okay, so there's many tensions in Scripture. Uh, this is one of them. Uh, you really did mean it for evil, but God meant it for good. Okay, but as with many tensions in Scripture, this one, uh, this one has an overriding, controlling reality. Okay, which is God's part in this. That's the overriding reality. And so this tilts toward God's intention in this, in this uh, circumstance. Uh, God brings good out of evil. As Keller puts it, the grace of God and the way in which out of love he controls history. That's how he puts it. Uh, he, and you can see in the story of Joseph how he controlled all the events that went on there. Without Joseph perceiving it, without his brothers perceiving it, okay. He also points out uh, the New Testament parallel in Romans eight twenty eight, and we and Paul says, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to His purpose. Um, it would be good to tease that out a bit, but. We don't have time, and that is 
it's working for good. You could say it's working for kind of the good of everyone involved, uh, whether they accept it or not, eventually, and for those or for those who are called according to his purpose. Um, God works all things. He's sovereign in that way. In all the things that happened to Joseph, God was working for his good. And, and so he does that for us as well. It may not be clear how he does this, even in, even in our lifetime. But he, he is doing it. And Joseph doesn't stop there. He says to his brothers, so do not fear. <clears throat> I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus, thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Uh, by saying this, doing this, Joseph takes action to forgive by word and deed. Um, I, that, that word, that, that phrase, he comforted them and spoke kindly to them, that sentence. That's for, for, the, for the person who's disposed to repent and accept forgiveness, can you imagine the power of your, your victim saying, you know, comforting you, speaking kindly to you. Keller says that in all of this, Joseph had enough joy to forgive. I'm, I'm going to modify that somewhat uh, by putting it a little differently. Joseph had enough faith to forgive. Okay. In the final analysis, both uh, seem to be true. Faith leads to joy, and arguably for some, uh, joy may be the first experience of faith. I think in some, some way it was for me years and years ago. Uh, as with other situations and people in, in Genesis, people act in faith. People... Uh, Joy, I'm sorry, as with other situations and people in Genesis, people act in faith. Faith that has a revealed and proven content. Okay? That is, the knowledge of who God has disclosed himself to be, his history with his people, and then, and then a wholehearted response to him. You see that in the... the Hebrews chapter 11, the people of faith, acting in faith. Uh, this dynamic of faith and joy is explained uh, more fully in 1 Peter 1, 6 to 9, if you want to uh, explore that on your own, your own. 1 Peter 1, 6 to 9. Joseph's faith was based on what God had revealed up to this point in the history of God's people. From where we are now, that picture is much more clear even, isn't it? Uh, quoting Keller here, uh, when we see, that, see what Jesus Christ was willing to do for us, how much more assurance should we have that God means everything uh, for our good? If we have access to resources for greater humility, than Joseph, and even greater assurance because we are in Christ, then if anything, we ought to be even better at forgiving and reconciling 
with those around us. Keller notes that one more thing is given to us in Christianity as a resource for forgiveness, for understanding our need for it, and for extending it to others, and that is uh, the understanding of the costliness of Jesus' saving love. Okay, How much it cost Jesus. In the garden scene in the Gospels, we get a sense of the weight okay, of the abject dread that Jesus experienced. And on the cross, we see specifically what was the source of that. In Matthew 26, we read this. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little further, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he goes back to pray the same thing two more times. Luke records it this way in chapter 22. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And, and notice there in Luke 22 that this was even after the appearance of an angel strengthening him. Okay. What was it that weighed on Jesus so heavily? Uh, we, of course, think of the great physical suffering, the mocking of his enemies etc., and, and the sheer human loneliness of the situation occurs to us as we see the distance of the disciples sleeping for sorrow as their Lord agonizes in prayer and the betrayal and the denials that he knows and predicts even will come shortly. But Keller rightly points out out that the real cost of Jesus is seen among the final words of Jesus on the cross. In Matthew 27, 46, and Mark 15, 34, we hear the same, same thing. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lemma sabachthani, which means, I'm glad there was translation, my God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? The real focal point of what, what weighed on Jesus was this vast separation from God that he experienced as he bore our sin, was judged for it, and bore the penalty for it. He bore that separation for you and for me, for all who believe. Um, some, as Keller puts, points out, some would have a God who, who doesn't bring this judgment on people. Who There's no heaven, no hell, well, no hell anyway, that he just forgives without any atonement. My friends, you know, e either, 
either heaven and hell, I mean, sorry, either hell and eternal divine judgment are real or the gospel is just a vapor and a myth. As Keller puts it, even given all of the injustice, sin, and rebellion that has transpired in history and all that will happen before the Lord returns, if there is no judgment day, what hope is there for the world? And another thing, if there's no Lamb of God who took my place to bear the penalty for my sin, what hope is there for me? Okay. But it's all true. Romans 3, 23 to 26 says this. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he has passed over, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. For all who will believe there is indeed forgiveness, mercy, Kindness, compassion, and love, the love and closeness of God. This changes us, doesn't it? And the change it makes is that we now have the transforming understanding planted firmly in our hearts that it takes to receive God's forgiveness and to engage in the work of human forgiveness and reconciliation and even to bear the cost of forgiveness. We'll talk about that in a moment if we have time, as we have time. So that is the end of the chapter itself. Uh, we want to cover Appendix C2, uh, C also. Um, so are there any questions or comments up to this point? I should have opened that up. I'm glad Mike took the liberty to do that. Any questions? John? Right. And, and, and just, just to repeat the obvious again, uh, <clears throat> that is, that comes from faith. The faith in God who's revealed himself. And uh, it's not, it doesn't come from human nature. It just it simply can't do that. Notice, to, to be a little dark here, <laughs> the, uh, there had to be another thief on the cross, on another cross that, that didn't repent for a contrast. I say there had to be, there was. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Anything else before we touch on the appendix? Don't know how long that will take, but has some practicalities in it. Okay, the appendix is appendix C uh, <clears throat> that he titles "Forgiveness Practices." Um, uh, 
given its practicality, this relates to chapter 8 somewhat and, and is a good follow-up. <clears throat> um, in, in the first section of this, <clears throat> in order to understand what forgiveness looks like, Keller contrasts the gut response, the, the kind of the fallen human response, to being wronged. Uh, he contrasts that with the Christ-like response. The fallen instinctive response to being, well, section one is what, forgive, what forgiveness is. The fallen instinctive response to being wronged is to conceive of the wrong as a death that can only be paid by hurting the wrongdoer, uh, making them somehow to bear the burden of the wrong done to us, uh, or waiting and hoping for that some suffering will, will befall them. Uh, a moment's reflection shows that that will never work. The person wronged will never reach the end of the sense of loss by imposing loss on the wrongdoer. Uh, that bitterness and resentment and retribution will only become uh, a never-ending cycle that there's no escape from. If you want to look this up, I'm not going to dwell on it here, but an extreme example of this is the Albania, the tradition of the Albanian blood feud. Uh, it's a very chilling picture of what goes on uh, without forgiveness. Keller summarizes it this way. Forgiveness means, kind of a definition if you will, it means giving up the right to revenge, the right to seek repayment, from the one who harmed you. It must be recognized that forgiveness is a form of voluntary suffering. Either you make the debtor pay by hurting them until you feel things are even, or, or you, pay, you pay by forgiving and absorbing the pain within yourself. As it was costly for God, forgiveness is always costly to the forgiver. The work of forgiveness will be seen in several ways, and you've probably you've likely heard these before, some form of them. Uh, first, the forgiver will refuse to hurt the wrongdoer directly, and they will refuse to bring the sin up with them going forward. Okay, they're going to be in a reconciled relationship. This is never going to come up again. Okay. Second. The forgiver will refuse to hurt the wrongdoer in the eyes of others, and they will refuse to bring up this sin to others. And thirdly, perhaps the most difficult of all, they will refuse to indulge in ill will in their hearts, refusing to dwell on it internally. Uh, it's a promise that the food forgiver makes. It's a promise to refrain from these things and pray for the wrongdoer and remind, uh, remind ourselves of God's costly grace to us. Obviously, none of this will be easy. The forgiver voluntarily bears the cost of that. Bitterness and resentment can be tenacious and recurring. As I'm saying these things, you may know, you may experience, you know your experience of that yourself. Um, but in the same way that we can see a tenacious and recurring sin eventually overcome, 
we can also see bitterness and resentment replaced by habitual forgiveness in time. And in this, we, this, in this way, we, we walk the path of our Master and Lord, as in Colossians 3, 13. Forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. What we need in order to forgive. Uh, Keller notes a, a, that a life of forgiveness requires two things. First, spiritual poverty or humility. We've kind of already talked about that. Accepting the fact of our own sinfulness uh, undermines any feeling of superiority and can help quench the bitterness that comes from being wrong. Second, spiritual wealth or assurance. Personal experience of God's love and forgiveness limits any deep harm that others can do, up, do to us. They can't touch the real identity, wealth, and significance, indeed the position that we have before God in Christ. Um, in the third section, Keller parallels God's forgiveness and the forgiveness we're called to, which we've kind of already seen in Colossians 3. Uh, in Exodus 34, God reveals himself to Moses in this way. The Lord, and this, is, this is God speaking himself, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. Only in Jesus do we see how God can be both completely just and yet forgiving. It is through Christ's atonement, as we've already seen in Romans 3.26, God is both the just and justifier of those who have faith in Jesus. Our forgiveness parallels uh, this. We're commanded to forgive, as we've seen in Colossians 3, and restated this way in uh, Ephesians 4, 32, be kind to one another, uh, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. And in case you felt that something is missing from this dis discussion, he says also that we're required to forgive in a way that honors justice, as, as, just as God's forgiveness does. Forgiveness is part of the larger process of dealing with sin against oneself, as in Matthew 18, 15 to 17, the, uh, the process leading to church discipline. Or, or this way in Luke 17, if, you're, if your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. We can't, can't let sin linger unconfronted for the sake, for the sake of the sinner and for the sake of the one wrong. Uh, Keller quotes Don Carson here. Christians are, are called to abandon forgiveness. I'm sorry, that was completely wrong. Christians are called to abandon bitterness, to be forbearing, to have a forgiving stance even where the repentance of the offending party is conspicuous by its absence. On the other hand, their, their God centered passion for justice, their concern for God's glory, ensure that the awful 
odium of sin is not glossed over. Uh, <clears throat> we hold these two things together, and then he explains some of this a little bit further down uh, in the last section. Um, the gospel calls us to an equal concern for three things, to speak the truth and honor what's right, to be endlessly forgiving as we do so, and to never give up on the goal of reconciliation, a reconciled, warm relationship. Uh, first, God calls us to forgive whether or not the offender has repented and asked for forgiveness. He cites Mark uh, 11.25 for this. When you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone. Right there, in the midst of your prayer, without, you know, first thing, before engaging the, the offender. Remember the alternative this, to this is to give in to a cycle of resentment, besides being disobedient, in this case, to God. Second, Jesus calls us to speak the truth to both, uh, to both inner forgiveness and to rebuke and correct the offender. Uh, Mark 11 doesn't preclude Luke 17. Both of the, uh, these are acts of love, and I think someone pointed, that, yeah, I think John pointed this out a while ago. As he says, failing to do both is not loving to the perpetrator uh, who continues in the grip of wrongdoing, nor to others who may be wronged in the future, nor to God who is grieved. And you can, you can probably hear in your mind news stories you've heard where the churches have failed in one, one of those points or another. Third, in doing this, as he says, we are to speak the truth in love, Ephesians 4, 15. We're to pursue justice gently and humbly with a view to both redress wrongs and yet maintain or restore the relationship, Galatians 6, 1 to 4. Keller also recognizes there is a great deal of tension among these things and that there may be cases where even if we can hold all these things together, the other party may not be willing or able to. Okay? They may object to some part of the process. God recognizes that many people simply won't let you pursue all these things together and so says, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Romans 12, 18. Okay, are there any questions, comments, overall? Okay, I don't, I didn't look ahead in the schedule on the next chapter. I know the next Next Sunday school is going to be the last chapter of DeYoung's book on the scriptures. And then uh, I assume someone will carry forward with uh, chapter 9 of uh, this book. Okay, thank you.